0: some fun. Hi this, is... <laughs> Hi, this is Michael Waits and welcome back to India Game Changer. Today we are joined by Pritvi Kinney and Jashid Hamid, the co-founders of NuVedo. Thank you. Pridvi and Jashid, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you both doing today? You guys doing okay? Yeah, I'm
1: doing, doing great. Pretty good, yeah. Uh, in the midst of uh, the oncoming summer, incoming summer. So uh, things are getting pretty hot and mushrooms not feeling very good, but yeah, doing well.
0: Wait, so uh, where, where are you two based?
1: So we're based in Bangalore, uh, India, which is uh, in the state of Karnataka down south.
0: Yeah. yeah. So what does that mean? If it's just about to be summertime, what what is the previous season? Because I'm guessing it's not winter if you're down south.
2: I think uh, uh, Bangalore is one of those places that slightly has a better elevation, so in south. So that's also the reason that we we, are, we set up a business here. So there is a sort of a winter, but I don't think it's anything close to uh, a proper winter. The temperatures are out, like uh, 16, 17 degrees, okay. but like, yeah, right before this was sort of a winter. Sort think of it, yeah, if you want to call it that
0: good enough for me. Prithvi. can we start with you? Can we just get a little bit of your background and then Jashid will go to you f- second. Is that okay?
1: So, um, well, uh, I come from a, you know, philosophy background. Uh, I did philosophy in my undergrad and, and uh, I chose that after kind of moving away from from three predetermined parts that uh, you know the Indian education system kind of talks out for you which is medicine engineering or law and uh, I said okay I I, I really don't want to be doing this and I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm cut out for it at this stage I mean I want to be able to have uh, the option of exploring and I think that was a very, very good decision I took back when I was 18. And after that, of course, I went on to, um you know, work at a science company because I, I was still fascinated, you know, with science and tech and all of that and spent, uh, you know, the first few years of my life working with um, a science based uh, kind of sort of, uh, you know, uh, research company. And then I said, okay, you know, uh, all this is great, but I want to be able to work in small teams and create, you know, tangible impact. So I moved to Bangalore and at that time I started working with a startup. Um, and that's where I think, uh, you know, startups and smaller teams and, you know, uh, working in a manner that was agile really uh, hit me. And I worked in the tech space, both uh, in the space of bioengineering And, uh, you know, quantum cybersecurity, which is really the deep, deep end of tech uh, for a while, uh, had kind of set up a few, uh, you know, startups in that space and uh, very challenging, very exciting. And all that was great. But I think uh, at at some point I I was also like, you know, um, we can build all this and we can have tons of tech, but at the end of the day, we have to eat and we have to survive. And I think um, the ideas of sustainability and of course, being able to, uh, not just using it as a buzzword, but like truly being able to have, you know, understand food systems was something that was really of interest to me. So um, went on to look at permaculture and, uh, and also understand how in India, we're looking at growing food. And, uh, that's when I chanced upon mushrooms. And I think they are a very, uh, you know, interesting space to work with. And that's how, you know, at that time, I kind of, uh, Josh was, I mean, I guess that's where, uh, our points intersected and we kind of, you know, met each other. And I think that would be a good segue into your story. And then maybe we can talk about how Perfect. we look into. Yeah.
0: Go
2: for it. So yeah, my, I think, uh. I'm the polar opposite of Prithvi. I I took one (laughs) of the three predetermined paths. I went down the uh, engineering paths in one of the top universities in the country, did the whole you know, got all the boxes checked. Yeah, exactly. Then uh, did manufacturing, engineering, figured out uh, that wasn't really what I was expecting. Uh, yeah, Yeah, And then after that, I was like, okay, what do you do after being and becoming an engineer in India? You go on to take an MBA, right, right. in one of the IAMs, one of the top institutes in the country. So, went on to part B of that story, <laughs> went and did an MBA in one of the top uh, universities, Tick that off the off the list, and uh, after that, joined uh, an one of the big uh, conglomerates here, which is in fast fashion. I worked with them uh, in the retail space as an operations manager for close to four years. Okay. So I was handling that p for like 25 stores in oh, wow. uh, South India across multiple states. I did that for three, four years. And then, you know, all the newness sort of started wearing off. And it's, yeah. as somebody who really loved nature and was really into outdoor sports and sustainability and things like that, I think the impact of my action started uh, it started hitting me. I was working in one of the most polluting industries in the world in fast fashion, making people buy stuff that they didn't really want to.
0: making them buy a ton of it, right? because let's be fair on this. They call it fast fashion for a reason. They don't want you to wear it that yeah. long. They want to manufacture it, exactly. pump it out, have you buy it, wear it and then buy more. So it's even worse than it sounds. Sorry, I interrupted you. go ahead.
2: It, no no you're you're exactly right and every day i just go to sleep uh, thinking about what 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 exactly am i contributing to right? right where are these products coming from and where is it going every month i have a target to grow my business by 15% 20% 30% and i'm like okay fine i'm making people buy even more of this stuff and is this really what i want to contribute to right and that's the same t- that's it. that's the time i decided to you know uh, take a pause and just think about what exactly i'm going with you know, the kind of experience that I have. And I figured that, you know, I should be doing something, something more sustainable, like Prithvi said. Yeah. And at the same time that both yeah. of us go, sort of got interested in permaculture, systems design, sustainability. We took some time off, volunteered in farms across India, spent the entire time uh, of COVID in different farms across India, with hardly anybody around. So we really got to see what it takes to do this and See, everybody thinks that you know you can just quit your job and move on to a farm and live by live on the mountain. Yeah. But I was I I wanted to live that life and see if it was something that I really want to because it, it, everything is nice in theory. And what Fitri and I found was that it's really 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 hard. Yeah. Make growing food in India with the limited resources that we have and all the challenges around us it was super hard. So that's sort of when this whole mushroom business started and that's the sort of when it popped up in our minds
1: okay so and i mean and that was also i think uh interesting because um you know while you know taking we come from a largely agrarian society right and you have these ideas about how food is grown and you know we, we know that the small farmer is uh, you know um uh, our greatest resource but in the way actually uh, people are looking at it as a system, and how you know, as the world is changing, are we as a country also looking at that change through uh, you know incorporating intelligent ways to grow the food, not just of course. Of, of course growing we've got a bunch of resources I mean you know but are we using a lot of that uh, you know tech and are we using intelligent systems not to say that we go down a path that say the west has you know given us not to say that we create large systems that uh, you know are completely out of and I think it's important it was important to really look at the context of what is India and what is a nation that has billion people and uh, how can we use the people as well in a way that is actually intelligent because uh, that's something we also discovered along the way and he said look if we were to also go and again set up a small farm or by ourselves what's going to happen to creating more uh, you know food resources and creating more farmers out there that can actually feed the nation instead of you know taking away from rather Instead of taking away from rather than that, adding to it and, uh, you know, building more structures and building more systems that could be adopted. So uh, from that perspective is when we said, okay, now we should really look at it. Yeah.
0: I love the way you say this, right? So if you go to the United States and watch the development, and we'll use the U.S. as a proxy for not India, yeah, for the Western world. Right. And you watch yeah. the development of farming going from small farms, which, like you said, are really hard to do. There's a reason why people wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning to farm and go to bed mm-hmm. at 6 o'clock, right? If, first of all, if the sun's not out, it's super hard to farm. Anyway, but how do you – and then this Archer Daniels Midland and Monsanto come in, and they create all these chemicals to, for, yeah. for growth, but they also mechanize the farms in a way where the humans are mostly not necessary. They're sitting in a vehicle that's just kind of driving around. And if you go to the United States, there just aren't that many farmers left anymore, which feels like it's okay, but in reality, it's not. So how do you create this balance between using technology to make farming easier, but don't eliminate the human angle here? Because you're right. When we separate ourselves from the creation of food, we take it for granted in a way. We forget just how hard it is. I was having a conversation with somebody earlier today, and I made the point that because we were talking about supply chain, so slightly different topic, but not so far away. But that if we took away the supply chain and then you couldn't get your food, most people couldn't even grow a tomato in their backyard was the thing that I said at all. So people should be, and if they're closer to the food production, they would think, oh, this is really hard. So we should value it higher. And I always say this too, that the beginning of the supply chain takes the least amount of money out of the supply chain And by the time it gets to Whole Foods, you're paying $7 for a tomato, but the guy and the gal that grew the tomato is making 25 cents. So how do you create this balance? And you can use mushroom farming as an example, but it's really just a proxy for the bigger idea of how to create food. But how do you create this balance so that the people that are doing it can have it easier, but that the people that are doing it don't disappear so that other people can understand the actual value for that food creation? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, and
2: really, really interesting point because right now, how things are moving in India, I think the only connection, like the US being the best example, the only connection that people have with the food is the price point. Yeah, That's the only thing that you know, you see a sticker on the supermarket and that's the only information that you have about the produce. Yeah, And that's also the reason why why, uh, stores like Whole Foods are doing really well because now people want the story. Yeah, they want to know the who grew that. Who grew who that thing? I want know to know
0: because I want to give that guy the money. Anyway, go ahead.
2: Exactly, right. And uh, you you touched on a, upon a really interesting point. And through new through what we're doing, what we're trying to do through this is see, mushroom cultivation is highly technical. Is right? it? It's, it's super technical, and that's the reason that a lot of people are not able to get into it because. There's sterilization, you need HEPA filters, you need autoclaves, you need, you need a bunch of different things. You need to invest a lot of money into buying these things. And after you invest the money you need to get trained in doing these things, you need a microbiologist or somebody who knows how to handle these equipment on your team. And how many farmers, let's face it, how many farmers can afford all of this? Nobody, right? yeah. And that's, yeah. And that's where we come in and we're like, you don't need to do any of this. So we remove the tech or we remove the hurdles for an average farmer, a person who doesn't know anything about mushrooms for him to start growing mushrooms is super hard because the learning curve is very steep. Mm -hmm. The technology is super expensive. So what we do is we remove the tech from the process. We do all the technical aspects of it. We remove the tech and we supply, we supply these grow kits. Basically essentially what we're doing is we're working with farmers. We're supplying them with grow kits and the only thing that they have to do is give it the right conditions to grow the mushroom at home. So now they don't have the risk of their crop failing because of contamination because which is that is a major risk in mushroom cultivation because you lose a lot of crop to other fungi or other pathogens in, in the environment. And we're removing that risk altogether. He doesn't need to know how the bags are made. We just send the bags to him. They're ready to throw out mushrooms from day one. He's doing 12 cycles instead of 4 cycles in a year. He can grow mushrooms 12 times in a year instead of three times he's removed he doesn't have to face any of the risks of contamination and that's how we're integrating the small farmer into a supply chain by giving them the technical inputs training them on cultivation giving them these grow kits and buying the mushrooms back from them so
1: if they want if they want yeah
0: Building the growth kit, I mean, obviously, this, you've, you two have done a ton of research. You can talk about that, too, if you'd like. I mean, I presume that part of the thing that you did during the pandemic when you were going around to look at all these other farms was trying to figure out how can we standardize a process that will make the grow kits give us a consistent output of mushrooms that are not exactly the same but close enough within a margin of error, right? Just statistically, so that the stuff that comes from over here is the same thing that comes from over there. But then also, how can we create a marketplace and the proper logistics and supply chain to get it from all over India or wherever they're grown into places where people can actually buy them, right? Because I can I can grow mushrooms in the back with a grow kit, but if it's just for me, that's great. But I can't eat every single mushroom that I grow. So if you're also creating the marketplace, how does all that work as well, just like logistically? Do you know what I mean? And is it mostly for people that were already farming something or is it for new farmers or is it both? Uh,
2: To start with, it's mostly for people who are already growing something because we don't want them to exclusively depend on the mushrooms for it. It's more of a supplementary income. That's how we're looking at it. Maybe in the future when we have the, uh, demand I can reach out to, to farmers and say you just do this for us okay so right now it's for people who already have farmers who already have some income coming in and who want to supplement their income with something extra because mushrooms really don't need a lot of time they just need a little bit of time in the morning and in the evening and during harvest during harvest is when there's a lot of labor involved and the second thing is we work with uh, we work with medicinal mushrooms so we we essentially turn medicinal mushrooms into extracts that's our core that's our core business. So when you're working with functional mushrooms, the uh, the raw material, the functional mushroom actually is dried, right? So 90% of the weight of a mushroom is generally water. So what we're doing is we're eliminating the weight. We are increasing the shelf life of the product so the logistics doesn't become uh, an issue anymore. And we do this in small clusters. So we grow mushrooms in places where they can grow naturally because India has been blessed with a diverse uh, Climate, yeah, we have a lot of different climates, and we ha- we are essentially trying to figure out or we and give them the mushrooms that grow well in their location. And then there's a small hub, a, one farmer acts as a small hub where he collects all the mushrooms from from his uh, locality or from around him, and then they ship it out to us uh, when it's ready. And we work with a margin of error because uh, we've done a lot of R and D on these mushrooms, and we know the we know how much they can expect the bare minimum and the pricing and the quantities we we calculate on the basis of the like the average or the worst case scenario sometimes. And we're at the pilot stage of this right now, actually. Okay. We've got five, six different farms in different parts of the country essentially making mushrooms for us. And we're sort of piloting this to see how how well this model can work. And again, a lot of predictions, we look at the weather patterns for the next couple of months to see how well it's going to do. All of these things, uh, it's going to take some fine tuning. And climate change is definitely not making anything easier for us. So we're working with uh, indigenous strains of mushroom rather than importing strains from the USA, Japan or China, which may or may not. Yeah, it might not do well here. We're trying to find mushrooms which grow naturally in India, which are adapted to the Indian climate. And using materials which we find locally to to reduce our carbon footprint.
0: Right.
1: Yeah, so I was saying one example of that is, uh, so uh, a lot of the mushrooms that come, uh, you know, the literature that's around oyster mushrooms, a simple mushroom, is paddy straw. So they say that paddy straw is a substrate that really works well with an oyster mushroom. But... uh, in certain states of course paddy is grown but the time it would take to reach you or by the time you actually have to source it from a farmer it will probably outweigh the costs so what we have started doing is we started working with uh, you know cereal grains that are um, you know more readily grown and for example ragi ragi is um, a, a, you know a millet. a millet that is traditionally grown in uh, Karnataka and it is, um, has now started its revival, of course, because uh, people have understood climate change and they realize that this doesn't require, you know, it's a very robust crop. It doesn't require so much water, things like that. So we we were anyway already working with Ragi and we've trained a lot of our strains to work on this particular, um, you know, uh, millet. So this is also, this is like one kind of an example to, to demonstrate how we've also been working with locally available substrates. Rather than using what is always just, you know, put out there in literature papers or published and said, you know, this is the ideal substrate for this mushroom. Yeah. So,
2: just going to interject here and say for everybody who's listening and who doesn't know what substrate means, it's the material that you grow mushrooms on. Yes. So mushrooms are essentially fungi and you can't, you don't, they don't grow the same way that plants do. They decompose So they grow on lignocellulosic waste, which is essentially sawdust. Or agricultural waste such as your uh, wheat straw or rice straw, uh, things like that. So uh, what we were saying is that the material that we use to grow mushrooms. See the the research paper from, from paper from the USA might recommend oak wood sawdust to grow shiitake, but right. where am I going to get oak wood sawdust in Bangalore? <laughs> right. And that's essentially the kind of research that we're doing also to find out ways to come up with things, use things that are locally available, so that we are also sort of reducing the waste which is being generated around and reducing our carbon footprint.
0: So for both of you, this is actually really important. You just said shiitake, and you you know that's a Japanese strain of mushroom, right? I, I lived in Japan for 22 years. I had a lot of it when I was there. I don't understand the difference, though, between a shiitake mushroom and a regular mushroom in the sense that I don't know whether it's more nutritional for me. The taste, frankly, is not that different to me. It depends on the way you cook it. But at some level, the Japanese have done a really good job of saying this shiitake mushroom should be more expensive, more, you know, better, whatever it is. Do you think about branding as well? I know it's a little bit off topic from the scientific conversation we've been having, but if you really want to have impact, you want to have more people participating on the other side of the market, on the purchase side of the market... So do you consider branding as well? So you can get to a point where people know the names of the mushrooms that you're developing or also know the name of Nuvedo. Sorry, you're both looking at each other like, do we yell at him yeah. now? Do we punch him? Like, what should we do? But I'm just no, curious no, about the branding really part.
1: of this. that's intelligent question, actually.
2: Yeah, and, just, yeah. and the, the funny thing is that's something that we're actually spending a lot of time working on in India because... Mushrooms are as much Indian as they are Chinese, Japanese, or uh, American. They've For been, sure. They're, Around, yeah.
1: Yeah. They, they need the part of the ecosystem. Any ecosystem that's had enough diversity, which India does, has had a bunch of different kinds of mushrooms that have been used. And,
2: right. and we have local names too. That, that's the testament sure. to the fact that these mushrooms are part of our local culture. It's just that. Like everything else, we sort of in India accept it after it becomes popular in the US. You know? Why? So, yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, Same question we ask ourselves every day. So what we've been sort of doing through Tuvedo is trying to revive the story around mushrooms, the Indian story around mushrooms, retelling the Indian narrative by using our names. Because language and culture are a way Huge. to promote this right if you exactly. want a person who doesn't know this to use it it has to first permeate their their life and food is an emotional topic it's not just like something that you grab from the shelf so just to, to get that connection like you rightly said we have our local names and we try to use them as much as possible while while we market our produce
1: and of course while that's you know uh it's a, quite a mammoth task considering india has a hundred languages i mean we are a, a nation where in every state, every tribe, every, uh, you know, few kilometers, the language changes and the mushrooms that are used change. in those contexts change. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So one of the, or like he's saying, a huge goal is also to kind of work with researchers as well as start documenting and start to talk about certain kinds of mushrooms, especially the ones that we're working with uh, from a context of uh, history as well as you know, local cultures. For, for example, we are home to uh, the largest Adivasi population in the world, which is the tribal population. And we have, uh, you know, certain mushrooms that have been used for treating various kinds of elements, uh, ailments. For example, you know, if you think of the Ganoderma species, which is a reishi mushroom, uh, you know, it's been used across uh, tribes in central India. Uh, they use it even in... Um, the Northeast, there are, uh, you know, evidences to prove that uh, certain mushrooms that are now coming up as medicinal mushrooms um, ha- have always had, you know, um, uh, uses for, say, asthma, immunobodulation, uh, skin treatments, you know, as wound healing. And 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 it's only, I mean, these are all there. There's, there's a lot of documented evidence, but it's all in a research paper. Now you tell me which Indian is going to look at, go into a research paper to really understand what's a mushroom. So uh, kind of breaking down all this information, putting it out there. And you rightly said, I think branding is um, definitely one aspect of it where uh, telling the story in different languages too. I think we realize that you start using the name in that language. Uh, people are so much more comfortable and so much more at ease with it. For example, uh, one of the things that we also started doing at Nuvedo was we started developing recipes uh, with say a shiitake mushroom, but we're going to call it in the language of say uh, uh, Kerala for the state of Kerala, Malayalam. And we kind of created a recipe that was very, you know, in line with that uh, uh, culture. So for example, we use coconut, we use local ingredients and we kind of enhance the flavors to create a dish that is very relatable. And it did really well. We've tried it out in, uh, you know, events. We've tried it in flea markets. Even a traditional dish, like, um, not a traditional, but I'd like to say a snack, an Indian snack, a samosa, which is like a folded, yep. um, uh, yeah, a samosa. Uh,
0: you it, should say, no, fried. explain it. You should, just because I know what a samosa is, doesn't mean that everybody else does. But explain everybody it. Has,
1: okay. So if samosa is like a deep fried, filled, um, patty, Like uh, Like a wonton, like yes. Yeah. Like a fried wonton. Uh, but filled with potato and peas and a few masala in it. It's delicious, by the the way. Yeah, it is. But imagine if the samosa was filled with a little bit of mushroom too. There you're also bringing in a snack that's very comfortable for people to eat, but you're introducing a new ingredient been there and that's when people are like oh mushroom samosa shiitake mushroom samosa wow that was and so good.
2: again like the, the question that we get asked the most is uh so do you guys uh, do sell culinary mushrooms or are you a functional mushroom company what do you what are you all doing and what we realized is that to be able to present mushrooms as something that has healing benefits you have to present mushrooms first you have to bring the idea of mushrooms as As food first, and then you can slowly graduate people into talking about it as medicine. Because here in India, the position that we are in right now, the question that we get asked the most is: Is mushrooms vegetarian or non-vegetarian? It's, 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 we have to start there. Interesting. So we are doing a lot of things to get people to talk about this, to make them comfortable with the idea of consuming mushrooms, and then slowly making them understand through this process that they have healing benefits and there are a bunch of different things that they're good for. And then you can have extracts. So we try to tell that story with the local context.
0: Do you feel like there's a secular change taking place in the way people are looking at just medicinal solutions at scale? And again, this may be out of scope, but just work with me for a second. You can look at, you know, big drug companies, whether they're in the US or in Europe, or frankly, in India as well, which does great research and great production of of traditional drugs. But then you can also look, like you said, mushrooms is just one example, functional mushrooms is just one example of something that tribes and, you know, people not in the tribes themselves, but have been using for medicinal purposes for centuries, not just for like five days or five weeks. Do you feel like there's a movement away from mass-produced existing, very expensive drugs, to these medicinal mushroom style solutions to health problems that have been around forever anyway? Do you know what I mean? Do you see people moving back to this?
2: Right, I think, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's again, like I think, yeah, it works both ways. The big the big companies are also super interested in these mushrooms because they're they're like okay what's in it that we haven't seen before right and then there are people on the other side who are like okay fine I don't I maybe don't want to take something that comes out of a uh, uh, a lab or a factory and I want to grow my own medicine and all of this came because of COVID
0: right yeah yeah,
2: yeah. It, it, those those two years really made people think uh, what they're putting in their bodies and what's the consequence of that yeah. so I feel like it has to be. Uh, together it has to be integrative and i think that's what's happening because now we have integrative medicine as a certification course that's happening in top universities in india where they're looking at an illness or a health condition with ayurveda and allopathy and traditional chinese medicine and yoga together not one against the other Four experts who come together and they sit and they talk about what's happening to the patient and they try. So I feel like though there are people who are moving away from uh, pharma into home remedies or growing their own food or using herbal remedies, on the larger scale, I feel like the change that can really happen in the market is when they both come, come together. And
1: Yeah, and I just wanted to add one point though. like, uh, uh, Of course, you know, trajectory say in India is that So you can, I mean, we've still not reached the point, I think, where people are rejecting pharma because they're just kind of getting, people are just kind of almost getting uh, access to it in a more comfortable way. Like if you think of the larger population. So for us to say reject pharma will be maybe down the line. But having said that, I think we were always a culture that was using home remedies and creating, for example, Ayurveda, right? A very strong part of uh, the entire nation and I think this I could say unanimously so while Ayurveda came again as a big wave in the world, people started rejecting uh, pharma here what happened is where there is access now uh, for like, and people can actually um, you know even the poorest of poor people can have access to medicines and uh, government has done a lot for that so we're not there yet where the entire nation per se can start rejecting it yet uh because the context is very different so i see like i think what josh had said i see a space where there won't be rejection but there'll be like this this crazy uh you know
2: Synology. synergy
1: that might happen yeah. because we're we um maybe we we don't we never went through the phase of oh pharma taking over everything and then people going back to uh you know traditional right.
0: natural remedies say, traditional
2: yeah. remedies yeah yeah. yeah. It's part of our culture. It's always been there. Exactly. Right?
1: So it's not like, oh, we had to let go of something to adopt something, but more like, hey, we got now got access to this, but we still have, you know, these traditional practices. So how do we kind of integrate both? So maybe that would be a way better to way to look at, at it. Yes. Yeah.
0: That's a great answer to a really uninformed question. I like it a lot, actually. I really like it. No, I mean, look, ignorance is okay. The reason why I ask questions is because I don't know the answer. I really want to learn, and that's just a killer answer to this. I want to ask you this as well. You know, India is this big, sprawling, sort of culturally, linguistically, and food-wise different country in combination, right, with all the states there. What role does the government or should the government play in the kind of thing that you're trying to accomplish in this building of an ecosystem around mushrooms all the way from helping smallholder farmers grow mushrooms better all the way to the end of the supply chain. Are there things that the government should do, is doing, that you expect them to do? Do they care? How does this all work as well?
2: The thing is, the government has been really promoting mushrooms uh, from a cultivation side. Like They gave out loans. There are subsidies for farmers to apply to uh, get access to easy credit but that's all on the supply side you know they're helping people to grow a lot of this they're helping farmers to come out with a lot but see you have the world's largest resources out there and it should be a no brainer and the reason why people haven't adopted is because they haven't done enough on, on the demand on side the demand there's side. not enough marketing that's happening and they're not portraying mushrooms in the same way that they did eggs because it if you look at the poultry industry in India, it's the same situation. If you go back in the back to the 90s, it introduced a lot of people into you know uh, large scale farming of chicken and eggs, and then what happened was everybody was growing it, but nobody wanted to eat eggs because egg, people were not used to having so many eggs in India. And then the government came up with this national level campaign where they said in Hindi they said Sunday hoya, Monday rose khao ande. I still remember it. And it was such a big campaign. Yeah, it says even if it's Sunday or Monday, you have to eat eggs every day. That's what they said. And that campaign just blew up. Unbelievable. And so everybody started eating eggs and something as simple as that. And that was on the radio, on the TV. <laughs> so what we expect or we what we feel like the government should be doing is helping us on spreading awareness about mushrooms. Right. So that the consumption can increase. Because India has, I'll give you, I'll give you small some statistics. India has a per capita mushroom consumption, yearly annual mushroom consumption per capita of around 80 grams compared to like 3 kilograms in the US. Okay. And that number is as high as 20 kilograms in China. Yeah. China is the world's largest producer and consumer of mushrooms. They eat 20 kgs of mushroom per person per year. Wow. It's around 3 kilograms per person per year in the US. India is not even at 100 grams. Right. So it's clearly a, a... an issue with uh, education and awareness surrounding this, this food, food, food product, basically.
0: But it sounds to me like it's way more than I expected, or right? I expected to have a conversation with you about food, really. But what we've really done is talked about supply chains, we've talked about medicinal qualities, we've talked about science, we've talked about technology, we've talked about ecosystems and marketplaces. And what this means to me is that we don't have enough time. I want to have both of you back, if you don't mind, to talk more about this as your business continues to grow, right? Because as you get more experience helping farmers, building better grow kits, building, you know, continuing to build the ecosystem and doing more R&D, I want to keep catching up with both of you, if that's okay, and also understand more on the branding side as you continue to build out the brands to see how that's going. I really want to thank both of you for doing this today. Prithvi Kinney, Jashid Hamid, the co-founders of Nuvedo. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thank you so much for having us. I think I really enjoyed, you know, where this kind of went. And I I, I loved that it was just this way of, uh, you know, we, we went in and out of like, you know, we went macro and then micro and it was fun. I, I really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah,
2: thank you so much, Michael. Yeah. Very, very thought-provoking questions Sincere. made us think about a lot of things. And we would love to be back on the show, yeah. And I would never turn down an opportunity to talk about mushrooms. So you can expect (laughs) us to be back anytime. Just have to let us know, man. Thank you again. Thank you so much, man.